If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I'm not interested in making someone a narcissist, or for that matter, a non-narcissist. I'm interested in people teaching them the specific skills and behaviors that they can learn and master, and that if they do, they will be more influential, more effective, and be able to exercise more power in their lives. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated, or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. I'm Michael Wenderoff, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Network relentlessly, stop obsessing about being liked, and break more rules, all if you want to be more influential and effective, sounds totally contrary to what most leadership experts say and leadership courses teach. But my guest today is not like most leadership experts. He's Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford Business School, a thought leader on power in organizations. I've had the privilege to coach in Jeff's courses for years and wanted to have a deeper conversation with him about his latest book, The Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. If power causes a visceral reaction in you, you'll want to listen closely. Because as Jeff says, if more good people want to get ahead and get things done, they need to understand power. If our conversation today pushes your buttons, buckle up and don't say, I didn't warn you. Jeff, welcome to 97% Effective. It feels like I just saw you in Barcelona. Well, you did just see me in Barcelona. And thank you very much for the wonderful dinner and for the wonderful evening. And thank you also for being one of the coaches who has been with the online lead course since its very inception. You have been an instrumental part of that success. So thank you so much for making the class as effective as it has been, Uh, mostly helping people get through and by and over uh, their resistance to material that many of them find disturbing or inconsistent with what they've been told by their friends and family or conventional wisdom or whatever. And, and I, think, I think it takes them some effort to get over that. And you have been extraordinarily helpful in all of that. Your books on power, 
have largely, I feel, stood the test of time. And so when I had the privilege to, to read your advanced copy last year of Seven Rules, you mentioned that you really hadn't expected to write another book on power. So what were you trying to address in Seven Rules? Well, I think there were several things I was trying to address. Number one, I think the Seven Rules give this book a simpler and more reader-friendly structure than the last book called Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't. Uh, secondly, I wanted to bring in some points of view and perspectives that had a, a, and some research literature that had occurred in the preceding 10 or 11 years since I had written Power. And thirdly, I wanted to take head on in a way I didn't even empower even more directly this issue that, you know, power has changed, the rules have changed, everything is new with social media, and that my views or the social science views on power are rooted in, you know, some 500-year-old guy named Niccolo Machiavelli and, and are no longer relevant or not relevant here or there. And, and I did that by incorporating many more examples, even that I did in the power book, from students and from my class, including women and uh, people of color, uh, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, etc., so that we could get beyond this stuff that says this is, a, this is material that's only useful to white men. For those who are less familiar with your work, you wrote years back, power is something people know when they see it, but they struggle to define it. And, and power gets a, a largely a bad rap with definitions of it all over the place, particularly in the, in the popular press. Since precision and definitions matter, can you just share, since we're going to talk about power, how you define power and importantly, how it differs from influence, which I think gets used a lot interchangeably? So power is simply the ability to get your way in contested situations, which of course are common in organizations because in interdependent systems, not everyone is going to see the world the same way because where you stand depends upon where you sit. Different people will have different information, different uh, key performance indicators, et cetera. And so they will see the world differently and different goals and objectives. Power is in the, the ability to get your way in those situations influences power and use. So power is a potential and influences when you use your power effectively. Perfect. That kind of sets the framework here. And, you know, the seven rules, I'm just going to read them out quickly. Get out of your own way, break the rules, show up in a powerful fashion, create a powerful brand, network relentlessly, use your power, and understand that once you've acquired power, what you did to get it will be forgiven, forgotten, or both. As I read that list, and folks may pick up your book, it seems the people who don't shy away from power or embrace or exhibit these rules tend to well be disproportionately power-hungry, may we say Machiavellian, often a lot of narcissists, which I know you've uh, researched and published on a lot. So the immediate reaction is, Jeff has written another book teaching us to be narcissists, especially since there isn't a section on ethics. Is this that type of manual, or how do you re respond to that? So I respond in two ways. Number one, I think people, including social scientists and authors, uh, should write things that they know about. Ethics is a very large field. It is, uh, you know, it is not something in which I've had formal training. I'm not trained as an ethicist. I don't know. I know some of the research on ethics, which suggests, by the way, that training in ethics does not lead to more ethical behavior. 
But beyond that, I'm not an expert on ethics. And so therefore, I don't write about that. That's number one. Number two, narcissism is a personality characteristic. And what I try to do in my books and in my teaching, and I'm 100% sure what you do in your coaching, is not transform people's personality, but to transform the behaviors that they engage in. So, uh, so I'm not interested in making someone a narcissist or, for that matter, a non-narcissist. I'm interested in people teaching them the specific skills and behaviors that they can learn and master and that if they do, they will be more influential, more effective, and be able to exercise more power in their lives. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. So this is really about understanding those underlying principles in the social sciences that, that function or work in these cases and then how to apply that in your context. It is about the specific behaviors. So get out of your own way. Rule one is that it talks to a bunch of specific behaviors or a specific set of attitudes that lead to a set of specific behaviors, such as don't worry obsessively about whether or not some, uh, you're, you're liked by everybody because, in the words of Gary Lovin, if you want to be liked at a dog, your job as a senior leader is not to win a popularity contest, but to get stuff done. So, you know, Network Relentlessly talks about various forms of networking behaviors and who you should be networking with and how much time you should be spending networking. It is not trying to make you into a networker, whatever that is. So the first rule which you began to touch on, I want to kind of laser in and, and dive into that about rule number one of get out of your own way. So one of the things as coaches, right, we have people tap into their past, their mental models, their worldviews, past experience that, that frames how they view the world and perhaps what they will or won't do. And so our, our past can be a strength, but also can be a blocker. As you wrote that chapter and you've worked with so many individuals who have navigated power and are great examples that you bring up in the book, can you share if this is really the stumbling block that, that, that holds people and prevents them from kind of getting to the rest of the rules? When it comes to power, kind of quickly getting out of your own way, what are ways that, that people can do that in an accelerated fashion without feeling like they've sold their soul in the process? Well, I think your insight is completely correct that, that, that this is the most fundamental rule because it's, well, it's rule one. I mean, if you say I won't do networking, if you say I won't try to learn um, more effective ways of presenting myself both physically and in my language, if you say, I will, you know, not use my power, you've self-inhibited yourself in ways that will get in your own way. And so therefore getting out of your own way becomes really the first rule and most fundamental thing, because you're not willing to do anything else if you're going to come into situations with a bunch of beliefs that um, and a bunch of inhibitions that many, by the way, of your competitors are not going to have, which will therefore disadvantage you. So it's a it's a it's the most fundamental thing, and it's I think the thing that coaching and coaches address the most directly. In the first thing you would probably address as a coach is what are people's mental models and what are they willing and not willing to do. I know it's what you do. How can I get people to try on behaviors that they have been previously unwilling to do? Because if they are unwilling to do these things, they're going to start at a disadvantage. So how do I get them? 
uh, to do what they were unwilling to do. And I think the way you get people to do things they're unwilling to do is you tell them to try them. You know, I mean, you wouldn't know if you like tomatoes or eggplant or whatever unless you taste it. You don't know how you're going to respond and how others will respond to the use of these behaviors unless you do them. And so the first thing is to get people to try stuff. And I think that's why coaching is so important because oftentimes the coach is able, because of the relationship that you've developed with your client, to get people to do things that they would not otherwise do. And I would add to that, Jeff, I think that's that's absolutely spot on. Rule number two about breaking the rules, this one I think most people get, and, and you cite a lot of great evidence here, and I think it would go hand in hand uh, with how companies innovate or break rules, particularly in Silicon Valley, to change the paradigm. In China, where I spent a large part of my career, we had the saying, right, at the, the top has its measures, the bottom has countermeasures uh, in order to get things done. I'd say that, that people are generally recognize that, that value of breaking the rules. You use David and Goliath as a very useful example in the book. But as they start to proceed and, and they hit rules number six and seven, so rule number six about use your power to retain power, and the most important rule of all, rule number seven, that success excuses almost everything, these two really kind of push people further than, than rule number two about breaking the rules. Rewriting the rules so you stay in power, your transgressions will get overlooked, you won't be punished. So it does feel like or sounds like, and people will bring this up, a kind of prescription to, to break laws, violate norms, that you're not going to be held accountable. Again, what the power hungry would do. Feels hard for kind of, and I hate to use the word, but I'm going to use it simplified here, kind of good people to swallow. Reactions to that? Well, I think those are, you know, I think those are tough rules. Rule six incorporates uh, what you do about your competition, which I sometimes describe as strategic outplacement, where you build relationships with executive recruiters and get your rivals to get hired into better jobs elsewhere, which makes them happy and you happier. Rule seven, I think, is illustrated every day. You know, and it, it is a tough reality. But I think rule seven goes with rule one in the following way. If I'm going to ask you to get out of your own way, the first thing people say is, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be discovered. I'm going to have people. I'm going to create enemies. And when if I engage in disinhibited behavior, if I get out of my own way, if I embrace a wider range of things that I have done in the past, um, you know, people are not going to like me. People will come back after me. People will do all these terrible things. And they are extraordinarily worried about the consequences. And what Rule 7 says is if the consequences of doing what you've done is that you find yourself or wind up in a position of great power, wealth, and success, it will not matter what you did to get there. So get rid of all of these inhibiting beliefs that say, oh, my goodness, yes, I may rise to the top. And yes, I may become successful and powerful in the CEO or this, that, or the other thing. But at the end, this is, you know, the just world idea. At the end, I'm going to be brought down. And that's not true. Most organizational processes are variance amplifying rather than homeostatic. And therefore, once you have power, there will be a bunch of mechanisms, which I describe in that chapter, that will tend to ensure that you keep your power. And the examples I use are pretty 
Stark, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, after after he was convicted for sexual offenses with young young girls, still had access to the British royal family, had access to high society and extraordinarily powerful people in the United States, was pursued to make donations. After his conviction, Martha Stewart, after she served jail time, has a brand that has never been worth more. Michael Milken, after he served jail time for securities violations, introduced on the an Oakland A's game as a, as a philanthropist and still access to the most powerful uh, circles in the, in, in the United States. I could go on with other examples, the point being, not I'm not telling you to go to jail. Jail is not pleasant. Um, become a sex offender or whatever. But these extreme examples, I think, illustrate the point that that when you have a certain amount of brand equity, a certain amount of financial wealth, you are largely not completely, but you are largely insulated from the consequences of what got you there, which has the implication. For rule one, stop worrying about all the things about what everybody is going to say about you and do about you and think about you because success provides its own, if you will, uh, insulation against uh, countermeasures. So a lot of that is just kind of get on with it. Yeah. Spot on. (laughs) By the way, that sounds very much like what you coach, you know, let's, (laughs) you know, I mean, before we worry about all the consequences of this, that, and the other thing, maybe we should do those things. Uh, you know, before we worry about the consequences of being on top, maybe we ought to get on top. Before we worry about the consequences of breaking the rules, we first need to break the rules. Yeah, I like to say to a lot of people, they think that they're Icarus hovering very, very close to the sun. The fact is most of them haven't uh, really gotten off the ground. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. So, so another question here, Jeff, and, and this has come up in, in some of the talks that, that you've, you've given, is that you describe organizations as, as very competitive. You mentioned the interdependence, relationships as being transactional. Certainly, the amount of time people are spending in organizations is shorter and shorter as, as they swap around. And you advise people to be wary of, of kind of forming friendships at work, or that there are other arenas, other contexts where you can be much different, much more authentic or vulnerable, if we use those words, kind of with, with friends. And The Economist had a, had, a, had a wonderful article last week about be wary of bringing your whole self to work, which I know is the current mantra out there. So the, the question here is, are you saying we should not be showing our full selves? Uh, some people would say, ah, that's compartmentalizing ourselves or covering or disclosing what's wrong with the bring your whole self to work. Why is that advice unwise? Well, you know, Adam Grant some years ago wrote a New York times column, which I love, which is entitled something to the effect of unless you're Oprah, be yourself is terrible advice. I think that's correct. People don't want to see your whole self at work. Uh, I think you need to be authentic to what the human beings around you want to need from you, not from you do not need to be authentic to how you're feeling. Uh, people don't want to know about your, you know, every pain and difficulty and desire and predilection. And, you know, to go back to the topic uh, that we've already kind of touched on is Bob, my friend Bob Sutton, who wrote The No Asshole, would say, you know, what if this idea to bring your whole self to work, what if your whole self is an asshole? You wouldn't want to bring that whole self to work. So, you know, I think, you know, the advice to bring your whole self to work is, is 
is bad advice. There's now been research done that suggests that uh, that authenticity is not particularly good in work relationships. It's different in personal relationships. And 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 also, when you say to people, bring your whole self to work, which self? I mean, we we all have multiple selves. Your role, I know you're a coach. I know you're a father. I know you're a husband. Uh, I know you're a citizen of Spain. And those are all roles that have you um, do various things that are not necessarily completely consistent with one of the, with, with each other, which you tell your children may not be what you tell your clients. You may not interact with your spouse as you interact with your children. You probably don't. You probably don't interact with your spouse in the same way as you do with your clients. Um, so you probably, by the way, and however old you are today, behave and learn and, and do things differently than you would have when you were 18 or 19. So the idea of, in quotes, bringing your whole self to work, which self is that? You know, and Herminia Ibarra has given a fabulous ta- uh, talk, um, both at TED and at the London Business School, which talks about how this idea of authenticity basically permits you to stop growing and developing. Because, you know, obviously, over time, you change, you change in your behaviors, you change in your skills, you change in what you're willing to do, you change in your attitudes. And the idea that somehow you should freeze at some point in time arbitrarily because that is your true authentic self, I don't think makes any sense. So is it a useful construct to be thinking about authenticity as being authentic to the situation, this Correct. Kind of, the idea of kind of Absolutely. situational leadership dealing with the, the particular context Correct. or what's called for in the moment. I think that's exactly right. To be authentic to the situation and to be authentic to what those people in the situation want and need from you at that moment. To conclude, Jeff, and I appreciate all your time here. I go back to my period as a, as a journalist and I always like to ask at the end here, and I know you've been starting to talk and speak a lot about your book. Has there any question, been there any question in, in this interview or previous ones that has not been asked of you um, that you're surprised about or you feel like should be asked? And given that it's probably a very insightful question knowing you to, to please go ahead and answer it. No, I think I think the question that is often I think there's several many questions that are not asked. One one question which I don't think can be asked in general, but it's an important question is what do we mean by success? What do we mean not do we mean what do we mean by power, but when you say what do we mean, you know, I have a friend who when he read an earlier draft of a book said to me, you know, what do you mean by a good but what what is if I if I read your book and I want it to be a good leader? Uh, what would that what would that involve? And I think we use words like good or success much too sloppily. You know, the, there are multiple criteria for success for organizations, you know, returns, shareholder return, return on assets, return on equity, return on sales, sales growth, et cetera. Those measures are weakly correlated uh, among themselves. Then there are measures of individual success, career advancement, career happiness, number of promotions, salary, et cetera. Those things are not perfectly correlated either. And the correlation between the two sets of measures, organizational success and personal success, are also very loosely correlated. So to take one of my favorite examples from Leadership BS, Stan O'Neill ran Merrill Lynch into the ground and left with a package of $160 million. 
So is Stan O'Neill successful? It depends upon whether or not you're Mr. and Mrs. O'Neill, or you're one of the Merrill Lynch employees who got laid off in the 2008 or 2009 financial crisis. So I think we need to be much more precise about what we, what we are talking about as we talk about these loose concepts of success or performance. On a quick personal note, Jeff, thank you. Two decades ago, I did my MBA at Stanford. I went from ignoring or, dare I say, rejecting your work to fast forward 15 years, embracing it and using it to help thousands of executives that feel stalled, hit glass ceilings, or are not having the impact they seek at work. And of course, your influence is more than apparent in my own book, Get Promoted, which really focuses on how to coach people as they navigate power dynamics at work. So Jeff, I very much appreciate your time and spending it with me and the audience here today. Again, Jeff Pfeffer's latest book, The Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. Jeff, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. And thank you again. You have been really a leader in this, all the work you've done to help and share information like your power map and, and do the coaching and work that you do. It is, I think, essential for people uh, to get coaching. I think coaching is an essential part of human development as they, uh, as they wrestle with, I think, some concepts that are not going to come naturally to them, uh, given the current kind of kumbaya culture. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.